We are continuing today in the book of Revelation. We sort of kicked it off and dove in last week. We went straight into the deep end of the pool. And uh, today we are in the middle section in verses 7 through 11. And then next week we will complete chapter 1. The reason we're taking uh, a bit of time to go through chapter 1 is chapter 1 does set the tone for the entire book of Revelation. And so we want to uh, prepare our hearts for that. So let's uh, open our Bibles. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Uh, just to have context this morning, we'll have those verses up there on the screen for you in case you don't have a Bible. By the way, there are some Bibles on the table by the pole in the middle of the sanctuary. We actually just got some new Bibles, which are a little more readable uh, than the previous ones that we had. If you'd like to grab one of those, those are free not only for use here during service, but if you don't have a Bible, you can take one with you. And uh, those are just, we want those to go out everywhere. So the book of Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, reading down to verse 10. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. And they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in tribulation, And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to... Laodicea. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word this morning. As always, we trust that you will speak and that you will minister to us. Lord, speak for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we did some introduction last week and we sort of jumped into this this book, we want to remind you that This is a book that is rarely actually taught in churches today. And I think the reason for that is people are afraid of it. I have some slides that I want to show you in just a moment. And I don't normally go into technical things, but I waited to this week to jump in because I've had many people say to me over over the years, even recently, 
you know, how can you know what this book is about? How can you know what it means? Because there are so many different opinions on how to approach it and how to understand it. In fact, there's a pastor friend of mine who, uh, I don't know him personally, I, sh- I should say just a pastor friend. He's a, he's a Calvary pastor, but he, he decided to sort of go into more of an online ministry. And he actually does a lot of it through Twitter, although he does it on YouTube as well. And uh, someone had, I guess, been asking him about the book of Revelation. And usually what happens when you watch these things online or read them is that people will say, well, why even bother? Who can understand it? And they sort of cast this dispersion over the book of Revelation. And he was trying to encourage people, telling them you, you can read it, you should read it. It's an open book and let the Lord speak to you and minister to you. And there was you know, a guy who replied in the, in the chain of replies, you know, just very negative. You know, you can't, don't bother with it. I've read it three times. I don't understand a thing that's in there, you know. And, and I see those things and it, it aches my heart because we can understand these things. This is an open book to us. But here's what causes the confusion. If you could bring up that first slide, please. So once again, I don't normally go into technical things, but I think this is one of those situations where it's important for us to get a sense of the four different approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. And uh, I'm saving the fourth one because that's kind of where, where we are. But there are problems with these first three. This first one is called the preterist view. I'm not going to read this whole slide to you. Uh, if any, by the way, if anybody wants this, let me know it's all out there for the, for the taking. There's, there's nothing hidden here. You know, you can have my notes. I cite my sources. Uh, the preterist view basically says the book of Revelation, you can see in bold there on the fourth bullet, full preterism holds that Jesus returned in AD 70. So the second coming has already happened. So it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? But they say that when Titus Vespasian came in in AD 70 and he destroyed the, the temple and he destroyed Jerusalem, that this, this view says the book of Revelation is sort of a symbolic picture of what happened during those, quote, Jewish wars and that this has basically already happened. In fact, he says, look down there at the bottom, according to this view, believers are living now in the new heaven and the new earth. I don't know about you, but I'm hoping for something a little bit better than what we have going on here right now, right? Okay. Full preterists maintain that there is no future second coming of Christ and no final resurrection and no final judgment. To me, that is heresy. Because I think the word of God is very clear on that. So we're, again, we're not going to belabor the point. Next slide. That's the preterist view. This next one is called the historicist or the historical view. And by the title, you might think, oh, this one might have some merit. But without going again through all of it, you can see there on the first bullet, they consider this basically a symbolic presentation of the total of church history. So there's basically this whole thing symbolic. And because they make it symbolic, they basically, says, they basically say, whatever it means to you is what it means. So as you're reading it, whatever pops into your mind, however you interpret the symbols and the language, that's just up to you. Bottom bullet. Indeed, as many as 50 different interpretations of the book of Revelation have appeared, they're talking about in commentaries and people who try to steer people in, in these things, varying with the time and circumstances of the expositor. So if somebody who wrote in the 15 or 1600s says something very different than someone who wrote in the 17 and 1800s. 
The very multiplicity of such interpretations and identifications of the personnel of Revelation with a variety of historical characters is its own refutation. In other words, nobody can agree on what it means and how to approach it because they take this purely symbolic approach. Now, the thing I want to point out to you with these approaches is these approaches actually apply in many ways to how people come to the scriptures as a whole, not just to the book of Revelation. And because they, when, when people want to, to make things symbolic that aren't symbolic, or take things that are symbolic but have a root in reality, in history, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, you're not free to just take it and make it mean whatever you want. Next slide is the idealist or allegorical or non-literal or symbolic or poetic view. The difference between this one and the other view is that this one has a lot of views of things in Scripture saying that these things aren't real, they aren't literal, they don't exist. So this one is easily traceable to back in the, the first century or so, or excuse me, the second century with the Alexandrian school of theology, which was regarded by the early church as heretical. So the early church fathers wrote against this, but it's motivated by a strong belief against a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom, which is toward the end of the book. And they, uh, they forced interpretive choices into spiritual or symbolic views. This allegorizes the entire book and they see everything as the great struggle between good and evil. The return of Christ, get this, takes place in your own heart and mind and it can mean to you whatever you need it to mean. Prophecy has nothing to say about real future events. So this view is just basically wide open to however the reader feels and thinks when they come to the scriptures. The last one, we call it the futurist view. So again, a lot of things here. Um, but we, this is where we are. This is where I am. This is where I think mo the majority of what we would call evangelical churches are today. That these things are um, literal. They have a literal fulfillment. The things of the book of Revelation have not yet come to pass. Uh, we're, we're talking about that as we go through chapter 1 here. Uh, there is a future millennial kingdom described in chapter 20, and then chapters 21 and 22 talk about the future eternal state of glory with God. Uh, the second bullet, in contrast to the other approaches to Revelation, the futuristic position holds a more literal interpretation of the book's specific prophecies. Though recognizing the frequent symbolism in various prophecies, the, the events foreshadowed by these symbols and their interpretation are regarded as being fulfilled in a literal way. That's what we believe, and we're going to talk about that as we go through this. Uh, the bottom uh, couple of bullets there, you can see uh, the futuristic school has gained a hold upon a large segment of interpreters of prophecy and conservative evangelicalism, largely because the other methods have led to such confusion of interpretation and have tended to make revelation a hopeless exegetical problem, meaning you can study it all you want, but you can never understand it. This is the best view that accords with the principles of literal interpretation. And I've, I've said a few times here from the pulpit, uh, thank you, Dan. Uh, so if anyone wants a copy of that, you're welcome to have it. I can send it to you, make it available. And that I cited some sources there at the bottom of that last slide. So it's important for us to understand that we're going to come at this from, as I mentioned last week, 
<clears throat> there are 240-something direct quotations from the Old Testament. There are almost 500 allusions, meaning references to the Old Testament, as we go through this. So the best way to have a good approach to understanding the book of Revelation is to have a firm grounding in the Word of God, specifically the Old Testament. And it helps us understand, as we uh, read through these things, what God meant as he's referring to these things. We'll get to a point uh, in the seven churches where he talks about that person, Jezebel. Well, we go back and look at Jezebel. She was a real historical figure. What happened when she was alive? And so we're going to go back and look at these things and bring them into focus. And the reason they're being referred to as they are uh, is because as God gave this to the apostle John to give to the church, it was meant to be open to those who are born again, who have the spirit of God. But it was also meant uh, often like parables to be veiled or to be hidden from those who do not yet know Christ. And this is a message to God's church. And we've read that here <clears throat> in chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And these seven churches, which we will get to starting in a couple of weeks, uh, the number seven denotes completion or completeness or maturity. And so these seven churches were re real, literal, historical churches. But these churches are also a type of all of church history, of all the churches that have ever lived. In fact, as, as I believe as we go through those, those letters to the seven churches, which if you have a red letter Bible, they're in red because Jesus wrote those letters to his churches. Each church today, as we go through this book, there's a message for us in those churches. In other words, it wasn't just something we're reading that it was somebody else's letter that God sent to them and it means nothing to us. It means everything to us. And as we read them, I'm sure you will see, and I encourage you, please um, read ahead. Don't, don't wait for us to go through this. You can sit down and read through it. Read through it as often as you can. And even if the stuff you don't understand, just read through it. We're going to get to it. And let the Lord speak to you. Let the Lord minister to you. You see, the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, is God's final word to mankind. His final word. And so we need to read it. And it makes sense to me why Satan would attack the veracity and the validity of the book of Revelation. Because there's so much in here for us to prepare us for what lies ahead. And so we need to read it. And this book promises that God will give uh, understanding to the hearer, to the a blessing to the reader, so that we can obey and hear, and that God will bless us. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I need a blessing. Let's read verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. I need a blessing. I'm, I assume you do. Most people I know need a blessing from God. The book of Revelation is a promised way of bringing blessing into your life. So don't be intimidated by the book of Revelation. Let it speak to you. Let it speak to me. So again, when it says that the time is near, 
It means that the seasons are near, not so much the time chronos, meaning, you know, hey, at 8 o'clock tomorrow, God is going to be coming back. No, it means seasons or occasions or appointed times. So when it says that the time is near, it's saying, you know, the, the more we go through history, and here we are 1,900, almost 2,000 years down the road from when this was written, certainly we are closer to this event uh, the event of Christ's coming, the event of the time of the tribulation, than when it was first written. And so we need to read it. We need to understand what is happen, happening. One of the things that John does to communicate, and the way that he does, and I think this is one of the things that sort of confuses people, is that John speaks in sevens. Using sevens as a, as a literary device, uh, that's called actually the heptatic structure. A seven is called a heptat. You know, a three would be called a triplet. A seven is called a heptat. And so in this book alone, here's, I'm just going to kind of spew them off to you, but just to help you understand, the idea seven again is the number of completion and perfection. So he talks about seven churches, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven stars, uh, seven lamps of fire, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven peals of thunder, sev- 7,000 people, uh, seven heads, seven diadems, which are crowns, seven angels again, seven plagues, seven bowls, seven mountains, seven kings. And so John does this to illustrate to us that whether it's a positive or a negative in the way it's being communicated, that it is complete, that it is fulfilling everything that God had in mind. So as we come to verse 7, which is where we left off last week, we finished with verse 6, it says in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so come. When it says he is coming with clouds, there are so many places in the scriptures that talk about the clouds and what what that means. You see, even when God met Moses on the mountain and gave him the law, you may remember in the book of Exodus. Do you remember what happened there? Moses would go up on the mountain to meet God and then the cloud, the Shekinah glory, meaning the, 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 the... radiance of God's presence would come upon that mountain. And remember when Moses would come down from meeting God in that cloud on top of the mountain, his face would glow, having been in the presence of God. So even from the very beginning, God met with man in a cloud. And we also know that uh, in Daniel chapter 7, of course, we just finished the book of Daniel, Daniel said, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, which is a reference to God the father and they brought him near before him. And so even in Daniel seven, Daniel was given a vision to say, hey, he's coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus said in Matthew uh, 24, 25 and 26, he talked about this very same thing. Matthew 26, 64, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And in Matthew 24, 
For uh, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he goes on a few verses later to say, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then a little bit later in Matthew 26, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on clouds of heaven. So this idea of Jesus coming on the clouds here in this verse, uh, every eye will see him. This is, you know, think about the earth is round, right? How is it that when Jesus returns, that every eye who is alive on the earth at that time will see him? I can't explain that, but I can just tell you that it's true. And this is something that only God can do. Now let's back up just a bit. We're going to talk about this as we get into the letters to the seven churches. But there's this thing called the rapture of the church. When the Lord comes back, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, to receive his church up into heaven. And that's one of the triggers to begin the time of the tribulation. In the rapture where he comes back and receives believers into heaven to go and be with him as now the clock starts ticking for the time of the tribulation. During that event, we have no indication that anyone will see him other than those who believe in him. But in this event, this, this issue of the second coming, which will be happening at the end of the time of the tribulation, it says every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And that's a reference, that's a Jewish reference to, to the Jews who, of course, when Jesus came the first time, they rejected him as Messiah. Now, I have a litany of scriptures here. I'm not going to read them all to you. But notice it says there that all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So the Jews in particular will mourn because they will realize that they rejected their Messiah. But all the tribes of the earth, meaning the Gentiles as well, they will mourn in a different way. They will mourn because they will realize it's too late for them. So in John 19, John referenced this in his epistle. It said, uh, this was as Jesus was crucified and they were getting ready to take him down off the cross. For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced, John 19. And so there's many places. Zechariah chapter 12 is probably the the place that this is referring to in the book of Revelation, where it says, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now notice it says, on him whom they pierced. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was crucified? As they were leading him up to the cross and the crucifixion, remember they took that that crown of thorns and they pushed it hard into his head. They sort of beat it down. If you watched any of the movies about this, they took uh, what it appears to be maybe a stick from two sides and kind of wedged it into this this ugly looking crown of thorns and just, you know, just pushed it into his head. So he was certainly pierced by the crown of thorns. Uh, 
But as they laid him on the cross and nailed him, they nailed him in three places, one nail through each of his wrists. Then they sort of put his feet on top of one another and drove one, one spike through his feet. And then as he was about to die, or had just died, remember the soldier went up to the cross and they said, we need to get people down before the, the Passover comes. And so to check to see if he was dead, they took the spear and basically poked him in the side. And as they did that, they said blood and water came out. So Jesus was pierced in his head. He was pierced in his hands. He was pierced in his feet. And he was pierced in his side by that Roman spear. But you see, ultimately what sent Jesus to the cross was not the decree of the Romans, but it was the, the vehemence and the hatred of his own people, the Jews. And so when it says they will mourn, during this time, there will be people during the time of the tribulation who the gospel is preached to. And we get to a, one of the chapters, will tell us about 144,000 Jewish witnesses, and they will preach globally to the whole earth, but specifically with an eye and a heart towards seeing the Jews who are alive at that time turning and repenting and specifically the Lord giving the Jewish nation another chance to see and to receive their Messiah. But that global preaching by those 144,000 Jewish witnesses will not only be to the Jews, it will be first to the Jews, but also the Gentiles who have not yet believed during that time on the earth will also be given a chance. And then in verse 8, he says, and as we read through this this morning, you probably heard the repetition of these things. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see, Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. So he's saying there in a sort of a symbolic way, I'm the beginning of the end. I encompass everything. I am the, if we were putting it in today's language, the A to Z. So I am the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he says these things here in chapter 1, but all the way in chapter 22, which is the last chapter of the book, near the end. He says in Revelation 22, 12 and 13, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So he says it here in the beginning of the book of Revelation and he says it at the end. So this is the introduction of Jesus. And notice he says there, I am. We first heard that phrase in Exodus chapter 3, where the Lord was speaking to Moses, and after God and Moses had had a conversation where Moses was commissioned by God to, to be his servant and to go back and to lead the Jewish people out of slavery from Egypt, they were having that conversation, and Moses said, well, finally, Lord, who shall I say sent me? They're, basically, they're not going to believe me. And he said, say the I am sent you. And what does that phrase mean? It means that I am. Not I was. Not I hope to be. I am. You see, for you and me, we can say I ain't. We can't say I am. He's the only one who can say I am. And that is a phrase that refers to the eternal deity of God. He is he is the eternally existent one. In fact, when you stop and think about this, 
when you think about, you know, okay, well, if God created the heavens and the earth, and then God created mankind, and God created the beasts, and God created all of these things, as we read in the Genesis account, and then we think, well, but who created God? You see, there is no answer to that question because God just is. And that, when you stop and think about that, ought to blow your mind. Because, see, we have pictures of ourselves, don't we, when we were little kids. And as we're growing up through life and as we get older, we feel the aches and pains and our hair turns gray and we start to have health issues. But you see, God has had none of that. God always was, he always is, and he always will be. And so when it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's referring to himself in the highest terms to say, I am the eternal God. I am the sovereign Lord. I am God. There is only one God. I am the past. I am the present. I am the future. And in him, all things will be consummated. In Philippians, Paul wrote this. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is, he was, he ever will be. And so this, when we understand it, and when we embrace it, helps us understand something, that there is no such thing as fate, There is no such thing as coincidence. There is no such thing as randomness or meaninglessness because God is the God over all things. He directs the macro and he directs the the micro. You see, God's involved in everything. The scriptures tell us over and over and over that God directs world events, that he directs leaders, down to the details of both your and my life. You see, God's concerned about everything. That's why we should pray about everything. That's why every decision we're making as we go through life, we should be just sort of crying out to God. God, what should I do? How, how should I proceed? God, lead me in the paths of righteousness. Lead me in the way everlasting. Again, because he's omnipotent. He's the ruling one. He's the sovereign. He's the one who holds sway over everything. God has his hand on everything. You see, God never sleeps. He never slumbers. You know, we get tired, don't we? Anybody here ever doze off at work? Of course. And so we we get distracted. We have ADD. We have OCD. We have all these things that, that distract us. But you see, nothing distracts God. He sees. He knows. There's nothing too great for him. And sometimes we can think, well, Lord, I'm not going to bother you with this because I know, I know you're busy listening to the prayers of, you know, eight or nine billion people and watching what's happening. This is nothing for God. You know, we get overwhelmed with one or two things happen. God gets overwhelmed by nothing. Nothing overwhelms him. You see, this is important for us to understand because it changes how we live. It changes how we see God and it changes how we view our life. 
You know, one of the, the most common things of the human condition is griping and complaining. And why do we do that? Because things aren't the way we want them to be. But you see, God transcends all of that. God can go beyond that. John said here in verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Remember last week we had mentioned that John was boiled alive in hot oil as this evil Roman ruler hated him so much and hated all Christians and was trying to kill John. And rather, uh, when John survived, rather than just you know, putting a spear through his body or something, he, he banished him to the island of Patmos, which is in the Aegean Sea. And it's an island that's about 10 miles by 6 miles. And that was the Roman penal colony. This is where people were sent to be imprisoned and to die. It was far enough out that no one could possibly swim. And it had little in the way of sustainable life. And so it was really where a place where people were sent to just to die. But John is saying, I'm your brother and I'm your companion. You see, John, remember we said last week, is the last living apostle. John could have pulled rank. He could have said, hey, I, John, the last living apostle. Hey, you guys should listen to me. No, what does he say? He says, your brother and your companion. He's saying, listen, I'm not greater than anybody else. And in a sense, he's saying, I don't know why God chose me to do this. Why he's revealing this to me. I was on the island of Patmos. And I was a companion in the tribulation and the kingdom. Not, not the tribulation meaning what's coming in the book, but tribulation meaning, the word tribulation means, uh, the Greek word is thlipsis, which means just the stuff we all go through. Everybody goes through tribulation. Anybody here have problems? Sorrows, worries, health issues, financial problems? I mean, these things can get the best of us, can't they? The idea behind tribulation is that you, you take a big beam and you drag it behind an object like a chariot or a tractor and it has spikes in it and it kind of rolls and it just kind of rolls over things and grinds them up and pulverizes them. Sometimes that's how we feel, isn't it, when we go through tribulation? So John is saying here, I'm your brother, your companion, I'm going through tribulation just like you are. And here I am in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's allowed me to live. He's allowed me to serve him all these years. I was on this island, and the reason I was on this island, it says, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. You see, John himself had been a faithful witness for all of these years, and because he was faithful to the word of God, and because he uh, was a man who talked about the testimony of Jesus Christ, he had suffered persecution. And so he was there because of this. And so... I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, verse 10, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. When you read about this, there are so many people who have kind of differing views on what it means when he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day or in spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I think it boils down to a couple potential things. One is, you know, every day is the Lord's day in a sense, you know, God created all days equally. So 
When he says, I was in the Spirit or in spirit, I believe the Holy Spirit was ministering to John. And I'd just like to say this about that, that hopefully you as a believer in Christ have experienced times of refreshing from the Lord where the Spirit of God has just ministered to you. Times where you're reading His Word and and it, it is as if the words are jumping off the page at you. And that He's speaking to you. I hope that you have experienced that, not that we seek experiences, but I believe it's just something, it's like a byproduct of our relationship with God. It also could be that the Lord's Day that he's referring to here might be the first day of the week or Sunday, we call Sunday the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. So it could be, he was saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day on Sunday. It really doesn't matter because either way, he was in the Spirit And it was on a day that he called the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And so now he's beginning to sort of chronicle for us. This is how it happened. Remember one of the things we said last week is, John's exiled on this this barren rock out sort of in the middle of the ocean, and yet somehow God provides basically paper and pen for him to write this stuff down. Because As the angel begins to speak, as the spirit begins to speak, as Jesus himself begins to speak, he says to John, write these things down. And so that's miraculous in and of itself. So John was in a place and a space where he could hear God speak. I'm not going to tell you exactly how that should be. Because you need to find time and space and a place where God can speak to you. So often the scriptures say, you know, in the Psalms, early in the morning will I rise to meet you. Many believe, as as I do, that's really the best time and place to meet him. You say, hey, man, I'm not a morning person. Well, when is your time? Maybe it's in the evening. Find a time to, to create that place and that space where you can hear God speak to you. That's the important thing. And John said he was in the spirit, the Lord was ministering to him, and he heard this voice speaking to him. So God began to speak and he said, John, verse 11, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. As the Lord is ministering to him, he says, write these things down. Write it in a book, what you see. Write it down. Send it to these seven churches. Now, the idea in saying send it to these seven churches sort of implies that he would be making at least seven copies of this. Because the idea is that this was to be sent to the churches. And of course, one of the patterns that had already been established as the New Testament was being written was that Paul would write letters to churches. And he would expect those churches to share those letters with other churches. And so here he's expecting that this letter... The letter, the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ would be shared among the churches. So this is actually, to me, an argument for reading and understanding the book of Revelation. Because this letter was written to these seven churches, but it was also written, if I believe seven is sort of a number that denotes the completeness, 
or the representation that these seven churches really represent all churches, not only throughout history, but it represents all types of churches that exist today. And so the book of Revelation is written to the church, not just to these seven churches. Certainly it was written to them, but it's also written to us as a church today. And so this is why we should read it. And so I encourage you to please continue to read. Read this book. Read it from chapter 1 to chapter 22. Read it as many times as you can. Because in reading it, God will begin to reveal things to you. God will begin to speak to your heart. And as we get into these seven churches, your Bible no doubt has some titles there. Uh, My Bible says to the church of Ephesus, the loveless church. It says to the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. To the church of Pergamos, the compromising church. To the church of Thyatira, the corrupt church. To the church in Sardis, he calls the dead church. The church of Philadelphia, he calls the faithful church. And the church in Laodicea, he calls the lukewarm church. Simply by those titles. We get a sense of what's being written and what's being addressed as he sends these letters to these churches. And certainly, I don't think it's a far stretch at all to say, whether we think about ourselves or we think about, you know, other churches that we know or maybe other churches that we've gone to, that there have been churches that were lacking in the love of God or that there were churches, of of course, I think of these more as being churches overseas and mission fields today, but churches that are persecuted for the name of Jesus. The underground church in China. The churches that are being established in the Middle East, in Asia, in India, places like that. The compromising church. Well, what needs to be said there? So many, probably most churches are compromising in some way. The corrupt church in Thyatira. Churches that are about money and power. They're not about the name of Jesus. They've lost their sense of purpose and vision. The dead church in Sardis, basically they're just dead. There's nothing happening in that church. The faithful church in Philadelphia, the positive example of a church that's loving God and loving people and staying close to their father. And the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the one that seems to be neither hot nor cold. And something that bothers Jesus to the point that he even says, And this is where we get that verse about knocking on the door where Jesus says, I'm knocking on the door trying to get in. I can't even get into this church. And so he speaks these things to his church, but not just these churches, you know, as we look back and kind of go, well, I, uh, it's an interesting story looking at it and reading about it. Boy, it's tough to be the church of Sardis or whatever and get that letter. You see, these letters are meant for all of us. And there are things in our lives that God wants to address as we go through this book. A couple of last things before we end. Remember, he said here in this book that there will be sort of a divine outline here in this book. Verse 19, we'll get to this next week, but I'm just sort of priming everything for you. Write the things which you have seen the things which are and the things which will take place after this. You see, that's really the divine outline for this book. The things which you have seen that John is being showed right now in chapter 1 about Jesus. 
the things which are. He's living in what we would call today the church age. We'll, we'll talk about this more as we go through it, but the time when the church is being given the opportunity to take the gospel to the world. The Great Commission was given to all people, not just to the church, it's given to the Jewish people as well, but it's given to believers. And then the things which will take place after this, which what happens here in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, we're introduced to Jesus. John is introduced to Jesus, and he's given a completely different vision of Jesus than he had of Jesus when he walked the earth. And in chapters 2 and 3, we have a vision of Jesus speaking to his church. And in chapters 4 and 5, we have the church in heaven. There's no more mention of the church after chapter 3 in the book of Revelation. The next place we see the church is we see the saints around the throne worshiping God in chapters 4 and 5. And chapters 4 and 5 are what worship should look like. And if you get confused today as you look across the landscape of the church and you see all these different things happening with the way worship is being conducted and songs are being written and all of that, well, just turn to Revelation 4 and 5 and let God set your expectations for what worship should be. You see, if every church, if every church read Revelation 4 and 5 and if their worship teams read Revelation 4 and 5, they would be committed to a worship of God that is just focused on the Lord. And there, what does the Lord do? I mean, we, we praise him, but we also recognize his sovereignty in our lives. And that's why we, you know, it's not wrong to sing a song, Lord, help me. But it's wrong to always only sing songs that say, Lord, help me. But we should be praising God for who he is, praising him for his majesty. Read the book of Psalms. Oh, Lord, you, you created the heavens and the earth. Lord, the heavens declare your glory. And we need to stop and look. We need to go out on a starry night and look up at the stars in heaven and see what God has done. So chapters 4 and 5 talk to us about worship. Then once we cross into chapter 6, the switch is flipped. We're brought back down from heaven to earth and we see the tribulation beginning to play out. Chapters 6 through 19 are the the playing out of the tribulation here on the earth. And then we'll see a point where the abomination of desolation takes place, which is what Daniel talked about. Where the Antichrist, who comes and brokers a peace treaty with Israel, which this isn't mentioned in Revelation, it's mentioned in Daniel 9. That's why we went through Daniel first. And then after this, this Antichrist, this world leader, comes and he brokers this peace treaty, then there will be a few years that he enters into a covenant with Israel, and then there's about three and a half years, roughly, of world peace, although there's stuff that happens. And then he goes in and he decides to declare himself God. And the bulk of that chapters 6 through 19 will be talking about the second half of the tribulation. There's a few chapters that talk about the first half. And then the second half of the tribulation, the time where God pours his wrath out upon the earth, where he pours out his judgment on a sinful and an unbelieving world. And as he does that, it's going to get gnarly, it's going to get nasty. But God does it because people have come to the place where, like so many people, we all know people like this who just rebel against God. They hate God. 
They want nothing to do with God and they thumb their nose at God. And all these things we hear about going on in the news with the, the, the movement to take kids from their parents who, who won't allow their kids to transition to another sex. Or we see things happening, you know, we're coming up on Gay Pride Month, right? You know what's going to happen. In major cities around the world, people are going to go on the streets and do things that shouldn't even be done in private. But they're going to flaunt it in public. These are the things that anger the heart of God. Where we take sin into the open and we try to make it normative. And say to everybody, hey, you can just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You can have relations with whomever you want, even animals. It's okay. Because that's how you were made. That's how you were created. And when these things happen, God sees these things. And they break his heart. But when the time of the tribulation comes, and right now we're living in a time of grace, right now we're living in a time of mercy where the gospel's going out and God is crying out through us and to all people, please stop, please turn to me. So people are being given a chance. You know, people say, why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. So it isn't... A good God allowing bad things to happen to good people. There are no good people, according to God. And so the book of Revelation explains all these things to us. And it says there will come a time when God's patience runs out with mankind. And it will be called the time of the tribulation. And so while it is still called today, we pray. While there's still an opportunity today, we tell people about Christ. We model Jesus in our lives. We hand out tracts. We speak truth to people. We tell them that God loves them. We, you know, we hear people all the time. I'm sure you do. I do as well, where people are just going, I'm falling apart. My life's falling apart. When I hear people saying that, even at work, I'll say, look, is it okay? Can I pray for you? You're like, we well, you can't do that in the workplace. Sure you can. You can do it anywhere the Spirit of God is. And is there any place the Spirit of God is not? So you can do that. And if they say, no, not right now, then you say, good, I'll be praying for you later today and this evening. And then you come back later, you just say, hey, I've been praying for you. How are you doing? You know, you don't have to be aggressive. You don't have to be like an evangelist in somebody's face with things. All you have to do is be, is be a spirit for loves Jesus. And just say, Lord, use me. Lord, Lord, let me be your hands and feet. That's the simplest thing. You see, it takes the pressure off. Nobody here is under pressure to perform. The only thing we have, hopefully, is that we see what God has done for us, what he's done for me. And hopefully, I'm in love with him. Hopefully, I've come to the place where I've said, I'm grateful that you're my Savior, but I'm more grateful that you're my Lord. Let him be your Savior and your Lord. Then it will be for you as it is for anyone where he said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and they respond to me. And hear his voice, listen to his voice. Let him lead you, let him guide you. Don't let anyone put you on a guilt trip. But if you love him, just as you, it is in human relationships, when you love someone, you serve them, don't you? When you love someone, you're like, can I get something for you? Can I, can I do this for you? Can I, you know, 
But we do this in our relationships, right? There's many ways we serve one another. Take that into your human relationships outside of the home. Take that into your relationships outside of the church. Change your language to be when you're talking to someone at work. Hey, you know, I do this often when people call me and they're like, hey, can I talk to you for a few minutes? I, got, you know, and I know they're calling because I want to get something done. I'm like, yeah, hey, what's going on? I'm listening to them like, so how can I serve you today? What can I do for you? How can I help you? And people aren't used to that, right? People are like, hey, man, I'm too busy. Don't be calling me. You know what? If you just approach it with, you know what? The Lord, the Lord gives me capacity to do things. I do what I do because God enables me. And he will do that for you. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. Let him be that in our lives. Next week, we will finish up chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. And then we'll start dealing with these letters that Jesus wrote to these churches, but that he also wrote to us. Lord, thank you. We love you. We bless you this morning. Thank you for giving us what we need. Thank you for blessing us beyond measure. And Lord, on this day, as we've been told here, even at the beginning, when every eye will see you, we know that there will be a time when every person, every human being will come before you. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether willingly or unwillingly. God, thank you as we sit here today that we are a part of those who are in the willing group. There are many out there who are unwilling. Lord, may we not ever become jaded toward those who are in that category. But may our hearts remain soft toward them in that we want them to find what we've found. Lord, there have been people who have said things like, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I like that, Lord, because it keeps us humble. It keeps us where we should be because the ground at the foot of the cross is level. No one is higher or greater. We are all equal. We are all the same before you. And so, Lord, may we understand that and may we have open hearts as, as we look around and see, us, see what's going on in this world. As, as we see the anger and the bitterness and the hatred, Lord, may we be soft. May we be supple. May we be filled with your spirit and may we be your people for such a time as this to just love people the way you love them and just to let you, to let your Holy Spirit and your word work in their lives. Lord, I think so often of that man whom you were ministering to. And he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. Lord, do that for us, we pray. As we worship you now, we go in peace. We go in hope. We go encouraged, God. And Lord, today, the Lord's day, may we truly be in the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.